You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. On m'accuse d'être votre maîtresse. On voudrait maintenant que je sois obligé de poser des questions. J'ai reçu une lettre anonyme, moi aussi. Tu es au mieux avec Germain Lavorteur. Je te conseille de cultiver cette relation. Tu en auras peut-être besoin si ta fille Jeannette continue à passer des heures entières dans le bureau de ton médecin-chef. Malheureusement pour vous, je viens de la pharmacie. Toutes les ampoules prescrites sont portées comme sorties. J'ignore si vous les employez à votre usage personnel ou si vous les revendez, mais il faudra les retrouver avant demain matin. Fayol a reçu une lettre. Bah, ce qui est plus grave, c'est que j'en ai reçu une, moi aussi. Et pourquoi plus grave Parce que je suis un homme public, monsieur Fayol. Tu crois que je ne te connais pas Tous nos locataires, tous, il te les a fallu. Sauf le boy scout et le vieux frochard. Et encore, je suis pas sûr du boy scout. Heureusement que ce matin, j'ai reçu une lettre qui m'a ouvert l'œil. Quelle lettre Celle-ci. Quoi Vous vous levez à l'instant et vous avez déjà les doigts tachés d'encre. À l'assassin anonyme il fallait du sang, oiseau de sang, oiseau noir, corbeau. C'est la Au fond, le corbeau, c'est peut-être vous. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ken Stanley. How do you do? French Month continues with a look at Henri-Georges Clouseau's Les Corbeaux, also known as The Raven. The film was released in 1943 and made by Continental Films, a German company operated in France during World War II. It's the story of a small town of St. Robin, which is plagued by a poison pen letter writer who torments citizens with scandalous details of their lives, turning people against one another and casting a net of suspicion across the entire region. We will be spoiling this 77-year-old film, so you have been warned. Kat, when was the first time you saw Le Corbeau, and what did you think? Well, just wanted to say, for a 77-year-old film, it's incredible. I was late to the party on this one. It was only a few years ago. So there was some sort of scandal going on on Twitter at the time of fake rumours or somebody losing their job. I wish I could remember what it was. And I saw Le Corbeau around that time and just thought, God, this just resonates so much with what's happening with somebody says something and someone writes a blog and these things get out of control. 
it's an incredible film, perhaps one of his most underrated as well, because everybody knows him for Diabolique, and obviously I run a magazine called Diabolique, but when you look at his films outside of that, you know, all of them are incredible in their way, and it just tends to sort of float under a lot of people's radars, though, for whatever reason. How about you, Ken? It was about 10 years ago. I thought it was quite compelling. A nice, uh, suspenseful little melodrama and, uh, with some stunning moments. And since then, in preparation for the podcast, I've watched it a couple times and my estimation for the film has grown. Like Kat has said, it's, it resonates. I kind of fell into this movie. As you guys know, I was doing a whole series of films, uh, that were released in the year 1969. And this one was on a list of 69 films. And that comes about because it was re-released in 69 and really not allowed to be shown for a lot of years because of the controversial nature of the story. Clouseau was actually banned from filmmaking. At one point, he was banned for life, and then they reduced that to, I think, two or three years. So, yeah, I had no idea that this film even existed, and I'm so glad to just kind of have lucked upon it. Though at the same time, I have to ask you guys, why didn't you tell me about this movie? Come on. You get Diabolique, obviously, which is the big one, and Wages of Fear is quite well known as well. But I don't know, like, Clouseau's really neglected. I know Le Corbeau has literally just had a Blu-ray release here in the UK, but it's just this film, you never hear anybody, which I forgot I bought, by the way, and watched it for the podcast. And then the other day I was cleaning my office and I was like, hang on a minute, I just bought this on Blu-ray. I could have watched that. So I still haven't opened it. But I don't know why people don't talk about this film more, because it's incredible. And also that whole thing that scholars have now placed it as like the first noir I guess in more mainstream criticism, it doesn't really get talked about very much. I don't understand why. I picked it up because I found the character of Clouseau to be very intriguing. This individual who was neither uh, fish nor fowl. He wasn't like really traditional quality, and the French New Wave critics tended to dismiss him, and yet he made these international hits. So I was just curious about him and it was through the criterion collection because they they put out uh aside from wages of fear and die i believe they put out this and uh how do you pronounce the other one uh or whatever uh i don't like that title that's the one i can't say <laughs> you're talking about the one that he made in 47 right after the war okay or yeah yeah Wages of Fear and Diabolique, I mean, on their initial runs, they became big art house hits over here in America. So they had that reputation going for them. And these were two films that Criterion Collection had also put out that I don't think had been, you know, imported over here. So maybe that was one reason why uh, they weren't as well known. Before we get started on this, one thing that really frustrates me about Clouseau overall, when you do hear like English speaking film criticism I'm talking about now, refer to Clouseau like Ken, like you said, he didn't really fit into the new wave and the new waivers kind of rallied against him, but he wasn't really representative of classic French cinema either. He was always a bit of an outlier. 
And it really aggravates me when I see him written about, and this happens constantly, it's like this Hitchcock, this other Hitchcock. And that's based entirely on Diabolique, nothing else. Because if you look at his other films, and I think Le Corbeau is a blueprint for the things that he did later, especially films like Manon and La Verite, he, the more noirish type films that he did or dramas. I don't think he, he was like a French Hitchcock. I think that's a really lazy way of trying to explain Clouseau. I think, yes, they understood tension and they understood certain visual narrative and they were both very good at that, but I think their obsessions were completely different. And I think Clouseau had a much more misanthropic idea of the human race like he literally hated everyone whereas Hitchcock tended to place people in kind of innocent and bad categories he was a little bit more black and white so it just really frustrates me because people I think it's the same with a a lot of French thrillers you tend to see them written about as these Hitchcock rip-offs and oh it's just so fucking lazy I think Clouseau was just totally his own filmmaker. And maybe that's why people just think, oh, French Clouseau, and they can't be bothered. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's because he's not presented in the way he should be presented, which is like this incredibly, like Ken said, fascinating figure in French film. He didn't really fit anywhere, and he was just so angry and dark and just some of his films border on like sadism they're so spiteful about people and he is infinitely fascinating just boxing him off as a french hitchcock is just it really doesn't do him any justice at all that's dismissive especially over in france i if you say something like in america where diabolique and wages of fear were hits that was kind of like a selling point to get more Americans to see the films is like, he's a French Hitchcock. But in France, to say that he's a French Hitchcock is very dismissive. I think it's dismissive completely these days. I mean, just to write off the guy's whole career, all of these incredible films and so many different styles of films. I mean, looking at The Murderer Lives at number 21, this kind of comedy of manners, which is also really dark in places. I mean, I know Hitchcock had his Mr. and Mrs. Smith phase and those kind of things, but you can't just write off a whole guy's career by saying, oh, he's just the French version of Hitchcock. Uh, The murder of Lizard number 21 does, to me, feel kind of like one of the British Hitchcock films, but also more like an Agatha Christie type thing as well. It's much more conventional, though, isn't it? No, it's a fun film. I think with Le Corbeau, though, you actually see this is the first time we see Clouseau developing his obsessions, the things that he tended to focus on throughout his career. It's the first time we actually see that. And I think another thing is a lot of people tend to place it in that World War II category. It was made under German occupation. So obviously it was rejected by the left, it was rejected by the right, it pissed everybody off. But there's this constant, well, what does it mean? Is it pro-communism? Is it, you know, and I think if you have, you remove it from that context, you can see that actually it's just a blueprint for the later films that he would make, where everybody is really complicated, nobody is good or bad, people do ridiculous things because they get desperate, 
And it's just this very kind of cynical view of human nature. There was something that one of his brothers said about him concerning the controversy around Le Corbeau, which he said uh, Clouseau was not interested in fascism. He was not interested in communism. He was interested in, in Henri Georges Clouseauism. Yeah, which is just perfect. So why is this film so controversial is one of the reasons <laughs> is because this film deals with letter writing, this poison pen writing, and that was rampant during World War II and a way for people to rat out other people and especially for people to rat out members of the resistance people who were Jewish, possibly in hiding or in positions of power that they wanted to take over. So this whole story of this poison pen letter writing campaign really resonated at the time and then was seen as being, yeah, almost pro-German, pro-occupation uh, as this uh, as the war wound down. This film came out in 43 and, you know, VE Day is in 44. Had it been released maybe even in 42 or 41, it would have been a different story. But it was, I think, a little still too fresh in people's minds once the occupation was over and people were looking to lay blame at the feet of other folks. And, and it was, it was again, like kind of this witch hunt after the war to be like, okay, now who can we punish for being collaborators? I also should point out that immediately in, in the aftermath of the film being released, the Germans didn't like it because they thought it discouraged people from informing. Again, it proves I don't think he was on a side. Like his brother said, he was on his side. I think he found certain things about humanity fascinating and he wanted to show them in all their shades of grey. And this is based on a true story as well in France, or even though it resonated with the period as well. I think there's yeah, it, something that may have been practical about the story in, in this phase of his career because he's just getting his feet wet. Assassin Lives at Number 21 was was a success, a popular film, and this is, in a way, it's another whodunit, like that film was. Yeah, and it goes back to just after World War One, where they had this French village where people were sending letters out under the name The Eye of the Tiger, which I wish they retained, although it's like, <laughs> I just think of Rocky now. And I think it is, it's just... You know, it does go into the sort of things that he was interested in. I don't think he was ever making a political statement about anything. And I'm sure that people may have remembered uh, the incident that it was inspired by from in a town called Toul, I believe, from uh, the early 19-teens. I managed to find Judith Main's book about Le Corbeau, and we'll hear from her a little bit later. And her going through the screenplays and the various versions of the screenplay. And then once Clouseau picked up the screenplay, he actually went back to the original case and brought some of those things into it and dropped some of the things that were in the screenplay. So it was interesting the way that he actually went back to the original details. And then, of course, he gave them his own spin. You know, talking about this as a mystery film, which it is essentially, it's also very difficult to get behind any of the characters that are in here. Our main character, Dr. Germain, he's not very likable at all. He is really horrible. 
He is not nice, but that's typical of Cluzo, though. He would present these just really horrible people. But for some reason, they just become really compelling, even though you just think, oh, what a horrid person. You can't ever give anyone sympathy, or rarely give anyone sympathy in his films. And this is like a perfect example. Who do you root for? Like, everyone is dodgy. Everyone is really sketchy and has some secret to hide. I just think he's fabulous. But, of course, he commits the cardinal sin of going against this sense of French heroism in World War II. And I know me and Mike have talked about this recently with Sam Deegan in terms of Czech cinema, some of the films that came out after World War II that looked at the collaboration aspects were similarly condemned because national cinema was keen to promote this idea of the French resistance fighter and everybody was on the same side and everyone was heroic. When human nature isn't like that, people do what they need to do to survive. People will lie, they'll cheat, they'll manipulate. And I think this is something that Caruso really understood about people. Even good people can be not very nice at certain times. If you've ever seen The Sorrow and the Pity, you see that there's a lot of people who was in France during the war who were collaborators with the Nazis, who were informers. And the reaction after the war was kind of hypocritical in a way that they, I mean, they actually put an actor to death. There was one of the actors who worked with Continental. I'm not exactly sure what his crimes were, but they also uh, had uh, lifelong bans on a couple other actors. And of course they, they sentenced Cluzo and, originally to a lifelong band, and they shortened that. In a way, it seemed like there was kind of a reaction to cover their own complicity and to cover their guilt. The entire French nation, who were maybe a little bit dodgy here and there occasionally once in a while, then all of a sudden, after they get liberated, and I love the French, <laughs> the reaction may have been something like, well, now that all that's over with, now we could be sitting in judgment on other people and uh there has to be some scapegoats or something. Well, it's the same with British cinema. All the British cinema produced in World War Two around that period is the British war hero fighting against fascism, and it completely whitewashes our dubious history at the start of World War Two, where we were appeasing Hitler and letting him break all his conventions that he was and letting him go in it's only when he goes into Poland they're like oh that's too much and we never really had in Britain that kind of kickback of actually no Britain are not whiter than white you know it's focused on this intense idea of the British war hero like the major someone with the moustache and some of it is absolute bullshit. We had a lot of Nazi sympathizers here as well, especially in the aristocracy. We don't, and especially in our royal family, but people don't like to talk about that. The famous Nazi gathering at Madison Square Garden, I believe, in the um, <laughs> mid thirties, really seriously. And the place was like packed. It was during the depression, people were looking for various different kinds of answers. So they all thought this might be an answer. That might be an answer. And so there are a lot of people susceptible to a lot of ideas. Wasn't it Father Conklin here in, was it Detroit? Detroit, yeah. Yeah, was a big-time Nazi sympathizer, if memory serves. And he was almost the um, Howard Carter from Mother Night. And he was like kind of that uh, Matahari-type character who was just like, oh, yeah, no, no, the Germans are great. I think Hitler had 
a framed photograph of Henry Ford in his office. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> they had a correspondence or something. And then there was uh, – who flew the uh, – Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh was known for his support of Adolf Hitler. We're all dirty. I think it's Philip Roth, The Plot Against America, which I have yet to see the TV show of it. But that kind of alternate history where Lindbergh wins the presidency and, you know, on the the wings of him being this national hero for flying the Atlantic. And plus, you know, the sympathy garnered by the murder, the kidnap and murder of his child. He's able to parlay that into some sort of political career. And, yeah, is very friendly, friendly with the uh, Nazis. But anyway, back to Le Corbeau. Um, <laughs> Talking about Dr. Germain, yeah, he is very unsympathetic. He is, and I'm glad I said spoilers, he has a secret history to him. So we are set to follow this guy. We don't necessarily like him. The first thing we see him doing is coming out of this farmhouse and washing his hands in this trough for animals, kind of like doing a Pontius Pilate, where he has just saved a mother during birth, but the child died. But then you also get this idea of, did the child die or did he murder the child? And it becomes this whole weird thing of abortion going through this entire film, which just hangs over it like a cloud and then finding out that abortion was actually a uh, a sentence that carried a death penalty in Vichy France was another interesting thing where I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. But it was such a, a huge, horrible thing that, yeah, you could be put to death if you were caught as an abortionist. And there is this shadow that follows Jermaine through this. And then we find out that he is very into saving the mother if the child can't be saved um, because that happened to his own wife where a doctor um, when he was living under a different name where a doctor had uh, basically allowed his wife and child to die. Yeah, he's a very complicated person but even when this comes out his sort of backstory is exposed and that he's walked away from his former life because he's grieving for this, for his wife you still don't really like him very much which is which is great, you know. It doesn't go the route that makes him. Well, he's he's just a bit mean because he's got this horrible thing that's happened to him. Because he's still a bit of a shithead. Seems like he's almost flailing about indiscriminately. Although I don't understand why Denise always throwing herself at him because he's <laughs> he's just really horrible. I think there's a. Kind of an S and M uh, dimension to their relationship to a certain extent. Oh, totally. Common in uh, Clouseau is that you will find people, and it's much more of a narrative device back in this era. That if you wanted to show that a a person was kind of crippled inside, that they would manifest a physical ailment of some kind. You know, it was an indication of there's something wrong with her. Most of the relationships in these films are sadistic. And then you get to Le Prisonnier, which was his last film and his only film in colour, and that is completely about a sadistic or S&M-based relationship. But even in things like La Verite, Manon, 
diabolique. People never really fall in love. They get in these power struggles where they're kind of ripping each other to pieces, which is another thing I find really fascinating about his works. It's almost like anti-romance. But then he was a bit of a sadist himself. So if you look at what he did to some of his actors... This may have all stemmed from the fact that he spent a couple of years in a sanitarium suffering from pleurisy, if I'm not mistaken. That tended to warp his worldview, I guess. You mentioned Denise, and I do definitely want to talk about her. And I don't think we necessarily know that she has an ailment at first. It feels like she's very much, well, she's got a few ailments. One is her leg, which was injured in a car accident years before. So she walks with a limp and yeah, kind of speaks to that turmoil inside of her. But then she also feigns a lot of ailments as well in order to get the doctor to take care of her, get Jermaine to take care of her. And we've got that wonderful scene when she's first introduced where she's painting her toenails in bed and just looks like this complete floozy and then hides that her leg was out and then has him examine her the way that uh, he wants to listen to her chest but so she starts to take off her shirt and he's like no 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 and then like lays a hanky over her chest so he can listen to her breath <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then you have that horrible little girl who shows up all the time oh, I love the little girl though she's like a sociopath <laughs> She's so is what is up with that hairdo? Her hair looks <laughs> terrible in this movie and it just kind of again speaks to the inner conflict of this little girl with these glasses kind of reminded me of like a Patricia Hitchcock character where she's got these thick glasses and she's working at the post office so that casts suspicion on her and she's always spying looking literally looking through keyholes and always showing up where she shouldn't show up and oh man yeah she just gives me the creeps the whole time. To a large extent, these characterizations of of uh, the various different players in the film are meant to um, cast suspicion upon them. They may be the Raven for this reason or that reason. So you're going to get this rogues gallery type effect about the entire cast and the various different characterizations you just play into that. Though Laura Vorze, who is kind of a love interest, though she is married of Dr. Germain, there, there's this struggle for him between these two women. You've got Denis, who is got the dark hair. She's the floozy. She's painting her toenails. She's got this leg injury. And then you have the saintly Laura Vorze, who works as a nurse in the hospital where they work and has the blonde hair and just, it's just, oh, it seems so serene. She goes to church. She's just such a wonderful person. I love that we've got this conflict and that she's got this sick, twisted side inside of her. Yeah, she is, after all, allegedly, if not, I was never quite sure about that. They were meeting, but, you know, had they consummated their meetings, she seems to be this, this, you know, upright, outstanding person, but she's allegedly having an affair with, uh, you know, the doctor. I would almost tend to believe that they are having an affair, if only that so many of the letters are true. Once the letters start rolling in in this movie and we really start getting kicked into gear, it just feels like so many of these letters are telling the truth, which is even more disturbing that 
we are accusing people of things that they are actually doing. Though I, and that does make me curious: is Doctor Germain having an affair with Laura, or is that just an accusation? Is that her accusing him? Because I think she writes some of the original letters, and then pretty soon, again, I said spoilers. Pretty soon, her husband, Doctor Vorze takes over and starts dictating letters to her. But then even after that, we see that it's not just those two who are in this, but other people start to write letters. And I think they really downplayed that in the final version of the film. But we've got Denis writing a letter. We've got the postman talking about how many letters are coming in. And in the original case, going back to what you were talking about, Ken, with, with Tool, they were saying that it was something like 3,000 letters over a, a really short amount of time. I think it was a 1,000 letters over three years' time, I think it was. And that it started being one person and then spread like a disease. And we'll talk about that with this movie. It spread through the entire community. So pretty soon everybody was ratting out everybody else. Well, people love to shit stir and they love to gossip. It's great how he brings that in, how, and, and, and that it comes from the original case as well. How once this thing is going, this raven, other people can get on the back of that just, you know, to have their fun or whatever, or to get revenge on someone who's annoyed them. And I think that's another fascinating aspect to it because generally I know they're trying to throw out the red herrings. Although the one that I most suspected, I think, when I first saw it was the little girl, because she was the only one who seemed truly capable. <laughs> she's so evil. Uh, I just, yeah, she's always there, like literally behind the door or just appears. When she appears in that stairwell asking him for money, that's so creepy. She just appears out of nowhere. <laughs> so I know there's the red herring bit, but it goes further than that because it does tell a lot about human nature and what people are capable of. And the fact that people just get on the, on the back of this bandwagon because, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah, it is her with that ball. I kept thinking of the little girl in um, M for whatever reason yeah. while I was watching it. And just like, she seemed like she would take Peter Laurie home and murder him. And yeah, the, she's the sister of Denis. And then they have this brother who I don't even remember if he gets a name, but he runs this school where they are all staying at. So there's basically two major areas that we're talking about. We're talking about the hospital and we're talking about this school. And yeah, I love when Jermaine comes in. So Jermaine lives there with Denis and with the little sister Roland and with the one-armed brother. And of course, when I see somebody who only has one arm, I'm thinking, okay, well, they've had, you know, something happened to them, almost like a castration kind of thing. You know, I watch a lot of Star Wars films, so that's where I usually get that. And there's even a, a shot later on where Vorze and Jermaine are talking and they look through a window and there's the one-armed man writing uh, something. Could be a poison pen letter. We don't know. But I love when Jermaine comes in to look at Denis and he closes the window where you can hear all these children outside playing. He hates children, you know, <laughs> and that he's living there with outside of the school or inside of this building and all these kids around all the time. And these kids are just, they seem like little monsters. It's great though. Cause this is the thing. Why is, why does Denise see him as future husband material? She's 
totally obsessed with him. And the, one of the first times we see him is he barges into his uh, room. He shut, slams the window shut because he can't stand kids. And you just think, what, what are you doing, woman? It's interesting. She's often called a femme fatale, described as a femme fatale, like a kind of prototype for a femme fatale. But she doesn't have the power of a femme fatale. She's a really, truly pathetic character in many ways. And I think Cluzo does a lot to establish that early on with the failed attempts to get attention with these. She kind of reminds me of one of those Victorian women who's always lying around with some undescribable illness that really exists, flaked out on the chaise lawn. She's kind of like that. She is a really pathetic character and she doesn't have any power. So it's interesting when you see a call de femme fatale because simply because she's a sexual character. Uh, but a femme fatale generally has a lot of power because of their sexuality, whereas Denise has no power. And a lot of the time we see her, she's just isolated in a room. She doesn't seem to have much connection to the wider community. She has this uh, injured foot that she's ashamed of. So... Again, it's this kind of generalizing with Cluzo that I would would not describe her as a femme fatale. She's like the opposite of a femme fatale because no matter how much she tries to seduce this horrible man, which I have no idea why she's so obsessed with him, maybe it's just because he seems like a challenge. I don't know. Or he's the only man who goes into her bedroom and she never leaves. Maybe it's that. But she has no power over him because he's so kind of angry and cut off from everybody and he just hates everything and everything's an annoyance and everything's irritating and he's kind of, you know. Well, she doesn't the, have exactly the, uh, doesn't have the joie de vivre of, uh, she, t- she tends to be pretty bleak herself. So yeah. maybe there's that connection. Maybe that he's a doctor, uh, and he can look after her infirmities or something. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, there is no real re- reason to read any kind of romance into the situation. No. I love the part when she's got those little glass caps on her backs. <laughs> well, we do find out, though, that they have fucked. Because towards the end of the movie, he finds out through another letter, and I think this is the letter that she writes to him, an anonymous letter, that she's going to have a baby. And there's talk later on when he comes back to her, it's just like he opens up the window right towards the end, so we hear the children, and then there's the question of... Would you save me for, you know, for the child or, you know, like that original question of do you save the mother or the child if there is a problem? And he's just like, mm, perhaps it leaves us this really vague. <laughs> and it's like, what? I, I think he would sacrifice her for a child now. There's a, there's a scene where, uh, the morning after scene or whatever in which he said, you know, I felt like that about you last night, but nah. It's like, you know, normally in the Hollywood thing, you have the smoking cigarettes and you have the kind of, in this. And he's basically like, look, I was bored. You were there. <laughs> now stop bothering me. I think it's wonderful. You've also got that thing later on where she tries to give her, she tries to give herself a miscarriage by throwing herself down the stairs. You know, the fact that they were even talking about that in a, what would have been a mainstream film is incredible with all the abortion talk as well. 
the subplot of, of their interrelationship is has its own dimensions there. I find the character of Vorzet, Vorze to be obviously central and uh, every bit as fascinating. Yeah, he is a fascinating character. And I don't want to read too much into this movie, but I think it really asks to have a lot of stuff written into it. Like I said, there's the the theme of childbirth. There is, you know, I love uh, when the one nurse gets accused of being uh, the La Corbeau, how she's dressed all in black, that you have so many people dressed in black like a raven in this movie. But Vorze, this wise old patriarch, the psychiatrist who seems to be just always there and doling out the right information and talking about who this person might be and really just providing a lot of guidance and seems to be very much a father figure towards Jermaine. And like I said, I I don't want to get too deep into this, but I was talking about abortion before and looking at his name, Vorze, uh, especially in the letters where they talk about uh, the wife of Vorze, La Femme of Vorze. Avorze together looks so, I mean, it is A-V-O-R-Z-E-T. That is A-V-O-R-T-E-R is the word for abort. And I think there's, they definitely named him because of that. And then the other thing that gets me is that, talking about gender in this movie, is that if you look at the idea of this poison pen campaign, I mean, poison pen letters are typically thought of being a very feminine thing, that that is one thing that can give women powers, that they can write these really nasty letters and be all prim and proper like Laura, but write these letters that are super nasty and pornographic. And like, he can't even say the words when he's giving this test later on in the film. He wrote those letters, and I think, I think to me, I thought, well, this gives him an opportunity to to relive this glory of his, reading the letters that he largely wrote, you know, because he is uh, spoiler alert, he's the Raven. Well, he's like the serial killer. He goes back to the scene of the crime. He's having the time of his life. That guy. He's almost confessing throughout the entire movie. When you look back on it, once you've already seen it and then you replay his scenes knowing it's him, you can just, oh, it's just so glorious because he is absolutely loving every minute of it. He's even saying stuff like, you know, someone who would do this (laughs) is either a sick woman or someone who's impotent. And it turns out it's him, you know, so he's he's acknowledging or sexually perverted. (laughs) So he's more or less, hey, look at me, I'm a sexual pervert and I'm impotent. <laughs> he, he's not just a father figure to Jermaine, but he's almost a father figure to his own wife because there's this huge May-December thing going on between them. It's just, it is crazy. And yeah, it definitely seems like he is not giving her anything when it comes to the bedroom department. Because he was originally involved with Laura's sister, that adds like some kind of weird kinky element to it that uh Yeah, there's a there's an interesting history with those two. And you talk about, you know, dark woman, fair woman, you know. I mean there's no one darker than Laura's sister. I did want to say actually, just to go back to the relationship between Vorsay and Denis, 
Cluso did that with La Prisonniere as well, this, which is about sadism, where you have this woman who becomes obsessed with this very detached, offhand, strange, psychologically stunted man who basically is very impotent. And this isn't a spoiler for the film, but he likes to take photographs of women and he has an interest in sadomasochism, which is why the English language title is Woman in Chains. But it's the same thing again. You have a woman who in, she develops an intense infatuation with this very flippant sort of detached man who obviously has psychological problems. I don't know what that says about Cluzo. <laughs> you know, how much he was saying about it himself. And then the aspect of jealousy as well comes up in quite a few of his films, including his unmade one, Inferno, which was all about jealousy, the one that they put back together in that wonderful documentary a few years ago. And I can't remember the guy's name who directed it, but it's fabulous. They put together all the footage and it starred Romy Schneider as this wife and the husband becomes very jealous of her and starts to imagine things. So you've got that in Le Corbeau as well, because ultimately you have the idea of Orsay being jealous of this young wife. He can't, well, we're led to believe he can't do anything, although they don't elaborate on that. But he's also very jealous that she might be interested in this young doctor, which is his motivation. As uh, another motivation would be his ability through the letters to control the situation, to control yeah. this town, you know. The way he ends up getting her thrown into a sanitarium at the end, and it's just like, oh, my wife is crazy. You really need to put her away. It's like the most gothic thing ever, though, that is. <laughs> it's another reason why I love it. Although I wouldn't say it was necessarily a gothic film. It does have some of those aspects of, of gothic literature in it. You know, the whole mad woman in the attic and all that idea of husbands just throwing their wives into asylums so they can carry on with their lives and tricking people and controlling their wives. And it, and it talks all about that, the fact that he has so much power in his position as a doctor, in his position in the community that he can completely abuse to, to basically destroy this woman who's only crime really is that she in, developed an infatuation on a young doctor and wrote a few letters to try and get something going between them. And it, like you say, Ken, he just really gets off on the power. And you just see that when you go back and watch it a second time. I love every scene he's in because he's just he's just loving it. He's just loving every all, everyone running around confused. And he's always the one that seems calm and he's offering out advice. But you just know that's not what he's doing at all, which makes it even more perverse when you, when you see it again because you just think he's loving this. When you see it the first time, he's kind of like a r relief in a way because we're getting all the nastiness from the relationships of the of the other characters and he stands and, and as you say cat he's like calm and you know he seems to be like a center that you can almost kind of like well i'm not crazy about the doctor guy jermaine so this guy seems like he's got it together a little bit and the scene at the post office where where he first starts going on at length about 
poison pen letter writers. It's brilliant. I think that whole scene is absolutely brilliant because, uh, you know, at that moment, he kind of like starts spreading out suspicion everywhere else but him, but including him at the end. So as to, to make Jermaine, who is the center of this uh, poison pen letter writing, it make it's bound to make him sound. It's bound to make him more paranoid because this learned doctor, learned psychologist who studied this stuff, just so happens he's a graphologist. Oh yeah, isn't that convenient <laughs> as well? <laughs> Get that wonderful scene of him having all the people write the letters and whose handwriting is going to match it. And obviously, it's not going to be anybody there, but he's still going to have this big kind of kangaroo court case. That scene is just typical Crusoe sadism because it's not just that they're testing handwriting. It's the fact these people have to stay there for hours and they're forced to write lines for hours. And they're kind of Denise like passing out. She's like, she won't take it anymore. And they've beaten it's like, you know, after a few hours, they'll slip and their true handwriting will come. It's like, who comes up with something like that? And so everyone's punished and it's done in just as such as this kind of you can just tell he's really enjoying it we'll say he's just at the helm of everything he's he reminds me of one of those characters that would turn up in Columbo later on although Columbo would have just known it was him but you know those like really narcissistic they're kind of always hanging around Columbo and telling him their theories he reminds me of one of those sort of characters you are right on the nose with that cat. Absolutely 100%. And of all of the Columbo villains, he reminds me so much of the Shatner one when Shatner was the actor who played a detective. So he is saying like, well, if I was on this case, I would do this and I would do that. And just so full of himself with all of that to the point where he almost loses himself and trips himself up because he uh, has you know solved the case himself. What do you think? I think that I had better try and help you. Would you? Oh, that would be an honor. Detective Lucerne helping me. Wait till I tell my wife. The other thing, too, is isn't Vorze high on uh, drugs throughout this whole movie? Because they talk about how the older sister, who's the nurse, is stealing drugs and then passing them on to Vorze. That's a revelation that comes about later in the film. I was a little bit shocked. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I'm a drug addict. <laughs> so, you know, by the end of the film, he's a drug addict, a sexual pervert, he's impotent, and he's a voice and letter writer. <laughs> so, so Jermaine doesn't seem so bad by that point. And going back to that Columbo thing, he's taunting Jermaine at points, the way that he says, like, you see everything in black and white. And then we get that scene to really drive that home with, and here you are back again, Ken, and we are talking about a swinging light. And we get that swinging light going back and forth between Jermaine and Vorze. And then wouldn't you know, what's else in the frame is a globe. And it just feels like, wow, this is really saying something a lot bigger than just this little town having this swinging light covering the globe and light and dark, light and dark as it goes across. That's actually is something that would have been in a Hitchcock film at some point, I think, because it is a, a visual represent. (laughs) 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 But in this context, it's a visual representation of an idea. And uh, I think that comes across very well. 
Well, Kat, it reminded me of uh, Distant Journey and the globe that's in that and how we have that globe uh, in so many scenes. I think there's a menorah in that same uh, setting, and you get the globe there as well. And then there's that old man who throws himself out of the window, and there's a globe on his desk. It just, yeah, it really reminded me that, uh, of that as well. Well, we haven't mentioned the suicide yet either, because, I mean, when it comes to covering kind of taboo subjects, this film has the whole gambit, doesn't it? And all the things that, like, the Hays Code in America are against. So it's got, like, infidelity, abortion, it's got suicide. It's like the only thing it hasn't got is homosexuality, I don't think. So it's basically has the whole lot. And that is another thing that's just kind of put in to bring us to that that end point which i absolutely love the way it ends they really hand that suicide to us on the silver platter the first time we see that cancer patient and he's they bring him the, his mother brings him his razor blade from home and you get that close up of the razor blade i was just like oh okay this will come back later and how he's testing the sharpness and then how he's like Hey, nurse, I really don't like being in bed number 13. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, just a side note that uh, in The Assassin Lives at number 21, Pierre Frenet, I believe, plays the uh, detective in that film. And he's assigned room 13 uh, at the building that's located at number 21 on a street. So I don't know if – what's the word for that? Triskaidekaphobia. Going back to Ledulo, I mean, what was the hat number when uh, Balmondo checks his hat? Number 13. Yep. <laughs> I, didn't, I had no idea, Ken, that we were going to have so much similarities between Ledulo and Le Corbeau. Yeah, there's, there is some crossover, yeah. Looking into, like, wider French culture, this idea of letter writing and being mischievous – I guess, and having dastardly plans really goes back to something like Dangerous Liaison, where you have the whole book is, is a series of letters and this scheme to corrupt a young girl. But this idea of how people present different faces to one another and you've got all these different letters. And it does really seem to be in the spirit of that as well, because a lot of the people that are writing the letters are doing that in that Dangerous Liaisons way. They're just doing it to wreck people's lives because it gives them power or because they're bored or because we don't find out why a lot of people join in. But it does seem like in a wider thing to, to go back to that, which seems to be about, I'm not, this isn't a criticism of the French. I just mean in a literary <laughs> way, seems to be a very French thing. Especially in the age of social media, for God's sakes. I mean, there are so many people who exercise the power of anonymity you know, on all kinds of different social formats. And it really speaks to this day and age as well, I think. This film is definitely... Well, the idea that you can get somebody write a blog to say, you know, this this person did this or this person did that, and then people can... It's almost like when you see that funeral scene with, you know, everybody's kind of... By this point, they've become like a pitchfork mob, and, you know, somebody writes something and then it gets onto the mainstream social media platforms. And a lot of times the original writer of whatever that piece with still maintains some sort of anonymous presence. 
in everything. So that was the thing that really, I can't remember what it was that had just kicked off, but it was a few years ago now. And I just watched it around the same time and thought, God, <laughs> this is kind of really resonates with what's going on now and the fact that people will just, and then everything sort of gets bent out of proportion and you have Chinese whispers and news articles quoting people's tweets as fact. And it's just, yeah. You mentioned the funeral scene. I can't help but imagine Cluzo licking his chops at the idea of orchestrating a riot at a funeral. <laughs> yeah. Almost what it becomes. Well, I love that when the letter falls out as they're on their way to the funeral and the letter falls out onto the street out of the uh, bunch of flowers, the wreath, and all of the people stepping around that letter as if it was something that was diseased. And just, you know, I talked about how the letter writing spreads through the community and that just that letter there on the ground just looks like it is something that is going to give you something just the way they're all stepping around it, just like it's breaking the, the sea and the, everyone's going around until finally someone picks it up and reads it. And it just, yeah, kicks off this whole thing. And then it becomes, well, it came out of your wreath, you know, older nurse, you really are a horrible <laughs> yeah. person. And then, yeah, it becomes this mob scene of we have to do something horrible to her because she obviously is like a bow. Well, you know what it reminds me of? And this is like a much later reference, but but was my point of ref, personal point of reference, is Martin Scorsese's After Hours when Griffin Dunn is kind of this woman goes after and puts these posters up about of, of him, accusing him and, and, and this whole mob come after him. Obviously, they've got an ice cream van and it's not a funeral. But it's the same thing, this pointing and this, like, people just getting whipped up into absolute hysteria off the back of a poster. And, and in this case, it's a letter. And it just reminds me, although that's like a, a comedy, so it becomes absurdly funny. But, and in this case, it's supposed to be a bit more scarier, a bit more serious. But it does remind me of that, how, you know, just this, this letter on the floor can cause just so much, just a piece of paper basically can cause such an extreme emotional response in people. And also gives, I think it gives Clouseau the opportunity to open up a little bit with the filmmaking in that, uh, a lot of the film is set in, in doors, but, but this is so strikingly shot, you know, uh, all these people dressed in black camera tilting up. It ends with these tracking shots of Mary running against these, uh, you know, brick walls and everything. And it's just, it's beautiful as well as very atmospheric and very, uh, has a suspense that it has, you know, it, it's a highlight of the film for me, anyhow. Again, it reminded me of M. It reminded me of Peter Lorre running through the streets when all of the criminals are after him and about to apprehend him. And the way that suddenly, I haven't liked this character at all in this film. And suddenly now I feel for this character because they're being pursued. And it's even worse because Peter Laurie's guilty and Marie is not. Right. She's a victim of uh, vigilantism and, and just the, but the image of her black cloak against the white walls and the tracking and the, and the physicality of it and the impending doom. It's, it's quite something. 
one that the mother is dressed in the exact same morning outfit at the end of the film and the way that she finally is the one. And I'm glad that it's a woman who finally has the agency in this film and is able to murder Vorze with the same razor blade that was there that they gave to the son and the way that she just walks out of the room and then we see her outside. And again, we've got freaking kids out in the street, more kids in this movie and her just walking away. Now that the, the vengeance is done. And I guess the cycle is ended now that Vorze is dead. I love that part. And it was one of the things that stood out the most for me was the fact that she appears like an angel of death. And she gets to be the one that gets the revenge. And she is the one that understood this whole time what was going on. And it's so effective because we basically only see her for a few scenes. And generally a woman would, would be saved by a man or some man would have to help her figure it out or whatever. So it's really powerful that he uses this matriarch figure to basically, it's almost like all the kids are squabbling and then the mother comes in and slams her fist down at the end and says enough it's incredible and we usually think of of female revenge films as something that came a lot later in the 60s and 70s and here Cluso is doing it in the 40s with an older woman as well which is again another really powerful thing because in, in traditional cinema we think of older women as less powerful and you know, they don't generally have much of a presence. And she seems like a peripheral character until she gets this huge statement at the end, which I I just think is absolutely fabulous. Because Cluzo quite often gets accused of being a misogynist, in some, especially with things like the verite. I don't think he was at all. I think the, the women in his films are often very complicated. I don't think he was a misogynist at all i think his cynicism extended to everyone and you know he was equal opportunities when it came to being cynical but he would often do things like explore women's sexuality and double standards and he does a lot of that in le corbeau in society and how men can be full of shit a lot of the time just the whole thing with the wife having no power, with Denis having no power. I think if you look beneath that, oh, well, he could be sadistic and he wasn't very nice to some of his actresses like Bridget Bardot. If you look beyond that, you see that actually he understood that women could be very complicated and painted them in shades of grey. He never falls into that ridiculous notion of a virgin in the hall. Because we have on the on the outside... We have that dichotomy represented in these two women. But then he shows us that both of those women are, are, are not that, <laughs> that neither of them are, are to do with that stereotype, which is surprising. It's really surprising. That's the swinging light bulb scene. And that's like it could have been, may have, he felt compelled to, to give like his world view in that one scene because he does discuss the, the whole idea that Jermaine is so foolish for seeing things in black and white. And Vorze is saying, it's gray. Where does the light begin? Where does the darkness begin? Where does uh, the light end? Where does the darkness end? And he just, he's emphasizing the idea that there are shades of gray all over the place. If Cluzo had an overriding philosophy to his films, that would be it. That you do need to see the shades of gray. 
I think that's one thing that just stands out about everything that he made is, you know, there is no, if you see things in black and white, you'll never understand what he's doing because there is no black and white. Even with white, there's black underneath it and vice versa. And I think he, you know, he would take these stereotypes and he would smash them, which is why when you see, read some of the stuff that the New Wavers wrote about him, seeing him as this more classic commercial director, I think he was anything but. His films were commercially successful, yes, because he put all the juicy things in that he knew and he knew audiences enjoyed, much like Hitchcock. Beneath the, that surface, it was a lot more complicated than that which is why you can watch a film like Le Corbeau, which is 77 years old, and still think, wow, you know, I get this. People are like this. They're still like this. I wanted to talk about how uh, Germain, he's supposed to be our protagonist. He's supposed to be the detective of this whodunit, but he's the worst detective. You know, I've talked about this in many (laughs) films before, as far as detectives who are not good at their job, and he is one of them. He cannot figure out who it is it is the mother who figures out who is the murder who is the poison pen writer in this he thinks that it's denis she tells him no and he figures out that it's laura laura's like no it's my husband he doesn't believe her and then goes back to denis because of her throwing herself down the stairs and then she's finally the one who manages to figure out and then he goes back to vorze so yeah he's terrible and meanwhile you're right we only have a handful of scenes with this mother character there's one moment where he is asleep at his desk and he wakes up and the mother is there she's gone back to being a cleaning woman and she's just like, I'm figuring it out. And when I do, you know, things are going to happen. It's just the person with the most agency in this entire movie. It's amazing. And the fact she's the only one not showboating her fucking theories to everyone who will listen as well. She's just very like, when I know, then you'll know. <laughs> yeah, well, she actually pulls out the knife to demonstrate, to show exactly how it's going to get done. This knife was used once before, and it's going to be used again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with Judith Main, author of The Cinephile Film Guy about Le Corbeau. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. I am very curious about you and, and what came first, the love of film or the love of French? How did that go? 
That's a great question, actually. The two things were going on simultaneously as a kid. I was a devoted film goer. And of course, that's before I ever heard the word cinephile or cinephilia and loved movies all of my life. But to me, it was movies. You know, it was popular Hollywood films is what I, what I knew until eventually I started getting into, you know, more rarefied films, foreign films, um, things that were more independent. And then the French stuff, I was a Francophile all my life too. And honestly, I majored in French in college because I felt like it was the only thing I, I was kind of good at. <laughs> you know, I had intended to do a couple of other different things, but French is just where I ended up. I loved studying the language. I loved being able to read things in, in French. But, you know, it was only when I went to graduate school that the two passions crossed. I went to graduate school at SUNY Buffalo. I went because the French department, I didn't know anything about the film program there, which it turns out was really very impressive. A friend of mine who was in the French department, we used to go to the series of French films that were being shown. He said, oh, let's start going to these, you know, because he said it'll be good for a French, which, of course, watching films in the original French, even if they do have subtitles, is great for your French. The film that I saw that really changed my life was uh, Masculine Feminine, the Godel film. But that was because the beginning of my Godel is God phase of my life. You know, like a lot of film study students um, shared that passion in the 70s, early 70s now. But the Godel film, you know, really made me want to learn more about cinema. And so that's when I started taking film studies courses. As I said, you know, we were all Godard freaks back in the day. I went to France, and I lived in France for a couple of years, and, you know, it was everything was pretty much focused on Godard and after. But I did see this odd film when I lived in France called Le Corbeau. Honestly, my frame of reference was in no way prepared for that film when I saw it. I thought it was a great film, but I was of that generation that if anything looked anything remotely like a classically well-made film, then you you spit at it, <laughs> you made fun of it, you thought it was like, oh, God, you know. And so it took me a long time to come back to, well, it took me a while to come back to Le Colbo. But I remember being impressed by it. But again, my, my headspace was just Godot and, you know, everything surrounding Godot. Now, eventually, I taught at a couple different places, but I came here to Ohio State in, um, oh, I say here like you should know where that is, in Columbus, Ohio, in 1976. And I started teaching uh, survey courses on French cinema. I needed, quote, something to do for World War II because it was a pretty standardly structured course where everything was by decades. And for the 40s, I could do not very many things because not a lot of stuff was easily and readily available. And this was a time, remember, we didn't have DVD or laser discs even back in those days. So everything had to be shown during class time. And so it had to be two hours or less, right? So I couldn't show the most famous occupation film, Children of Paradise. And I thought, well, wait, I love the Cobol. Let's do that. So I started teaching it. And honestly, in teaching it, I realized more and more what an amazing film it really is. And of course, the question that I was never able really to answer is how could a film like this be made 
during the occupation because I knew it was made by a Nazi company, Continental Films. And so that made it even more curious, you know, because everyone knew that censorship was uh, highly functional in France during the during the occupation. So eventually I wanted to find out more about the film. But again, it was a weird, circuitous route that took me to the Corbeau because I did research on other things, like, you know, the woman at the keyhole. The, I did other projects, but one that I eventually landed on was I wanted to look at 1950s French film. Now, see, this is me finally beginning to challenge the orthodoxy of Godard as God in French film studies. And I wanted to look at the 1950s because it was always written off as this completely uninteresting decade until like 1958, 1959, when the new wave started coming about. And then a figure I started to get really interested in was Clouseau. And the film that particularly grabbed my interest was Les Diaboliques. And I was interested in Diabolique for a number of reasons. Um, I think it's a great film, number one. The film is based on this novel by Boileau and Nalsejac, who were this duo, this team of French crime thriller uh, novels. And Clouseau changed the setup from the novel. In the novel, it's two women who are plotting together to get rid of the husband of one of them. And of course... Clouseau changed that to a woman and a man plotting to get rid of the man's wife. But there were still traces of, I thought, of lesbianism in that film, and that's always a subject that's, you know, fascinated me. Okay, how then did I go from Les Diaboliques back to Le Corbeau? Well, I knew that Clouseau was always a kind of bad boy in French cinema. He's somebody who had a really strange career. He didn't make as many films as you would think he would have given his gifts as a as a filmmaker. And so in preparing this project on Les Diaboliques, I thought, okay, well, I knew I wanted to look at what material was available in archives on that film. And I thought, you know, um, this archive in, in Paris has a lot of stuff on Le Corbeau, so maybe I, maybe I should look at that too, to get a sense of where this reputation came from about Le Corbeau, about Clouseau and why he got in so much trouble. So that's a circuitous answer to how I came to focus on Le Corbeau again. But it was in looking at this material on Les Diaboliques and therefore looking at the material on, on Le Corbeau that I thought, wow, this is really, really interesting because I saw these different versions of the screenplay. And it was fascinating to look at how it changed so much from Louis Chavance's um, initial screenplay up to the final film. And so that started me working on occupation cinema. And that's what I've been doing. Um, I wrote a book on Claire Denis somewhere in there, but um, that's what I've been doing kind of ever since. And the period is just so fascinating. And again, the example of, of Le Corbeau as a film made by a Nazi company during the war is just intriguing you know i wanted to know how that how censorship really worked in relationship to that film and again i thought the film was just so fabulous once i got over my prejudice against you know classical narratives i could see how much was going on there and what particularly interested me i've always been interested in gender i mean as you know and the gender structure of that film was 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 really curious 
and interesting. And the censorship quality and is still continue to interest me. And I'm not sure I ever have fully known to this day how that film got made, but I have at least some, you know, reasonable explanations for how it how it happened. So anyhow, so that's how I got back to Look Oval. And it's since become, you know, I've seen it so many times now, it's become uh, one of my very favorite films of, of all time. From what I remember, it was actually based on a real story? Yes, it is. It was based on a true story that happened at the end of World War I, 1917-1918, in a little town called Tulle in France. And there were a series of anonymous letters that began inundating the town. And eventually, uh, it was discovered that the person responsible, that is the person who had, re- who had done the letters initially, was a woman named Angèle Laval, Angela Laval. At first, it was considered unbelievable that a, a young woman from a good background and, and that a woman could possibly um, be writing these letters. And they were very damaging. This woman had access to all kinds of knowledge about what was going on in this town. She knew about the distant past of some families in the town. The letters were obscene, and people couldn't believe that a young woman from a good background could possibly write these venomous, horrible letters. And so Louis Chavance wrote an initial screenplay based on what had happened in in two. He wrote it in the 30s, and I think he deposited it in 19, I want to say 37 or 38. And that date is important, which is why I can't remember exactly when it was. Sorry. But the point is that the screenplay was on file as a registered screenplay before the German occupation of France, because the film really got into a lot of trouble um, as a result of the the aftermath of the of the well the end of the war and the aftermath of the of the war. How did Clouseau come upon it though? Well he and Chavance were friends and um the Chavance brought the screenplay to him and then they began working on the screenplay together. The original screenplay was Chavance and then Clouseau began working on it and he brought a number of different things to the table, you know, to the adaptation of the screenplay. He added things, um, changed some things, and it went through a number of, you know, these these kind of wild iterations um, from initial script to finished film. One of the biggest changes was making the psychiatrist, Gorset, the kind of central figure responsible for the anonymous letters. I mean, clearly his wife, Laura, was uh, writing them initially. But once he took over, it became much more his operation. Or you could say an operation for the couple, but it was not just her anymore. It was it was him, too, and even him primarily. Yeah, he's such an interesting character, and especially the way that he sets up so many machinations to try to, quote-unquote, catch him. It's kind of that uh, film noir trope of, I'm the person investigating, but it's actually the crime that I've committed. Exactly. The classroom scene, where they all have to do the writing exercise over and over again, the fact that he's in charge of that is, of course, one of the great ironies of the film, and that is based on a real event in the story of the anonymous letters in, in Tudor with uh, Angela Laval, because a really interesting doctor was brought in. His name is Edmond Locard. It's L-O-C-A-R-D. 
Edmond Lucal was brought in because he was known as an expert on uh, anonymous letters. And he's someone who had worked with the police and had lots of expertise in, in psychological matters. And so what he, he's the one who, who organized the write-off, <laughs> the, the, the dictation of the letters um, and made like every, well, actually the way he did it was, I think it was Andrew Laval was the only one who was forced to write the letters, but it's so much more dramatic when all the town has to, has to participate. And she tried carefully to control her handwriting um, and was going very slowly. And he, you know, forced her to speed it up um, and, um, really pushed her and then she eventually revealed the identical handwriting to the um to the to the anonymous letters and that's how she was found out she didn't get much of a sentence she was um i think she was under surveillance for a month um maybe longer than that but you'd think she would be imprisoned i mean she had caused people to commit suicide you know this is not somebody who was a complete um you know, who was, who was, who was innocent in any way whatsoever, but she didn't get much of a punishment. But Locard, then his position, and he really is the position of, a position of knowledge in the original case, is taken over by Vorze. And again, yeah, it's perfect because he's, he's Mr. In Charge, you know, and throughout the film, he functions in that way, like, um, kind of, wise old man who knows why people do the things they do. And everyone buys it. Even Dr. Germain buys it. He gets away with it over and over again. Can you remember any other of the changes that happened between that original version and what we see on screen? Well, the biggest change is making the real culprit, the Volze. In earlier versions of the screenplays, he was her father at one point. Volze was her father. The early versions of the film, too, had a very specific colonial subtext because the woman who was writing, and again, it was a woman, it was Laura, who was writing the anonymous letters. Her husband was in, it says the colonies, and um, she started writing these letters in his absence. And it turns out that uh, he was actually killed uh, while overseas, and she pretended that he was still alive and tried to blame it on him at first, and then it was found out that, well, no, he wasn't. You know, he had nothing to do with it because he was he was deceased. Some of the things that Clouseau added, one of them is the character of Roland, the kind of pesky young girl who works at the post office, um, who's always spying on everybody. She's real creepy in the film. Um, she was a fairly popular actress during the occupation. If you saw some of her other films made in the 40s, you wouldn't believe that it was her. And she manages to look like such a kind of creepy adolescent, you know, always trying to spy on, on, on everybody. That was an invention. He elevated the role of Marie Cordon, the nurse who was initially accused. To me, the biggest one was making Volze the husband, not the father, obviously, and, and making Volze the one who was ultimately the person in charge of writing the letters. Made him the husband, but not the father, but then kept that huge age difference. Exactly. Yeah, isn't that wild? Because he's a very paternalistic figure, and his authority is kind of assumed throughout the film, and then it's completely destroyed. 
and completely destroyed by a woman. Even though other people figure things out, it's the mother of the cancer survivor who ultimately uncovers the real culprit. They may take Laura away, but there's Bolze sitting in his study, and that's when the mother slashes his throat. Isn't it a great film? I, you know, the more I think about the film, and I've seen it many, many times, I'm just astonished by how fabulous it is. The look of it is fantastic. That's another thing that has come to interest me more and more, because it really is a film noir. I mean, there's no other way to describe it as, as film noir, right? But there's such an interesting history of film noir in France, because Jeanette Vincendeau has written quite a bit about this. Like, everyone thinks of film noir, and they think, oh... It's what you know, they'll give French the French credit for the name for naming these films that suddenly appeared on French screens after World War II, for naming this particular type of American film as as film noir. But what doesn't get mentioned too often is that there was another kind of historical reason why French critics were so enthusiastic about film noir in American films because. Who wanted to praise films of the occupation in the years following World War II, especially films made by a Nazi company? So these films that were made during the war that really are very interesting film noir also tended to get just kind of ignored, you know, and film noir was understood as primarily an American invention, whereas in France... I don't ever want to say, oh, here's when the first film noir came out in France, right? But, however, in the early 30s, there were three adaptations of uh, Georges Simenon's novels, and each one of them is a really interesting example of noir technique and noir style. Unfortunately, they're kind of hard to see. The one that's gotten the most attention is Jean Renoir's film La Nuit du Carrefour, which is Night at the Crosswords. Crosswords. <laughs> Honey, sorry, Night at the Crossroads. It's a film that doesn't get a lot of love because it initially survived in a really kind of messed up version. People said it was confusing. And I think what people didn't appreciate is that the way Georges Simenon's novels work is that the focus is really on the nature of the investigation. And all three of these novels featured his most famous investigator, Jules Maguet. And Maigret is such an interesting character, and the way he goes about his uh, investigations is by very quiet, patient observation of what's of what's going on. And so what becomes infinitely more interesting in these novels is what leads up to the solution to the crime, the process of solving the crime. By the time you find out who actually did it, it's secondary. It's not even the, the main issue anymore. And so when people say, oh, La Nuit du Carrefour, it's, it's disappointing because it's not clear who the really guilty party is. Well, that's Simonon. I mean, yeah, you do have villains. You, they get revealed, but it's almost an afterthought in a lot of his novels because what's much more interesting is, is the atmosphere that's created. And that's what Simonon is really famous for. And so... There's and and when I say atmosphere, I mean these kind of foggy, misty exteriors where people are kind of skulking around in the dark, and yeah, you're always feeling like you're under surveillance. What could be a more perfect definition of a film noir? And Jean Renoir did a great job of creating a film noir atmosphere in his adaptation. And then there were two others 
One is called The Yellow Dog. It's Le Chien Jaune. I think it's a pretty interesting film, too. But again, it is it is available on DVD in France, but it's just it, it's not talked about that much. And it's another one where the atmosphere is what counts the most. You know, it's this small town and a lot of creepy, suspicious people are milling about. And then the third one was Man Without a Head. La Tête Sans Main. La Tête. La Tête Un Homme. That's it. A Man's Head. That one is really interesting because it's um, Julien Duvivier who became a really great director in, in French cinema. And it starred one of my very favorite French actors of all time. His name is Harry Bourg. And he also made a number of occupation films. And he's somebody who was really, who had a hard time during the occupation. He worked, but he had a really, really hard time with the authorities. So those three films in the early 30s, all very noirish. And they're all fascinating films. I think La Tête d'un Homme is probably, with all respect to Renoir, the, probably the most interesting of the three. But the point is, is that this film noir style was there in the early 30s. And of course it's there in what we now call poetic realism. But unfortunately, the term poetic realism has kind of taken on a life of its own. And so you don't always see that what was going on in these poetic realist films was something that was really very much a part of a continuity of French film noir, you know, that was very much there throughout the 1930s. Now, to me, this is the most interesting aspect of French occupation cinema. People will talk about, you know, the big films that have gotten recognized are Children of Paradise, The Eternal Return, other like kind of big costume dramas, and that's let even though we can say they're fabulous films or whatever, but that has led a lot of people to assume that films made during the occupation are not particularly interesting in and of themselves, that all they did was kind of promote this new studio style that eventually became the tradition of quality in the 1950s. You know, saying um, this is an example of tradition of quality is sort of like saying, boy, do you stink? You know, it's like never really a, a compliment except to the most traditional critics. What's really interesting about occupation films is how much else there's there. There are, there are plenty of films, even continental films, that can be called precursors of the tradition of quality in the 1950s. But there's lots and lots of other things there as well. And so while I think Le Corbeau is a great example of French film noir, there are plenty of other things that went on in the 1940s that are interesting, including a kind of hybrid quality where you would have these dark film noir detective stories paired with romantic comedy. Clouseau's, his first film as a director was The Assassin Lives at Number 21, and then before that, he he wrote a film called uh, Le Dernier des Six, The Last of the Six. Both of them were adaptations of, of detective novels by a Belgian writer named Stanislas Simon. He's like the second best known detective writer in Belgium. And those two films are so interesting, especially the second one, the one that, that Clouseau directed, The Assassin Lives at Number 21. While they're trying to discover who the assassin is, who is this person who's going around killing all these people in Paris, there's also this incredible romantic comedy going on between Venz, is the name of the inspector, played by Pierre Frenet, 
and and Mila Malou is his romantic interest, played by Susie Delaire. She's another one of mine. She just died recently. She was like 102. I mean, literally just died in the last few months. She's just this incredible presence in, in, in this film and in other films that she was in. While the solving of the mystery is important, and there's plenty of noir shadows everywhere, there's also this romantic comedy going on with between the two of them, the verbal sparring between them, and she gets angry at him, and he gets angry at her, and she's always trying to bump into his uh, investigation. In the end, they, they end up happily to, back together. But it's just such an interesting kind of combination. Okay, those two films were adaptations of Steeman in the... Adaptations of Simonon, some of which were made for Continental and some of which were made for other companies. The ones now for Continental, one was called Annette and the Blonde Woman. And it's also a mystery where there's a really funny romantic comedy going on at the same time. And in um, the Maigret novels that were adapted, it doesn't work as well in, in those films. And it might be because of the director. It might be because of who they chose to play Maigret, who is Albert Préjean, and he's a great actor, but there's always been some disagreement about whether he was a good Maigret or not. But anyhow, in those films, too, there's the noir atmosphere, but then there's the comedy that comes into play also. So, you know, there's just so much there in the occupation that's so much more interesting than when people give occupation films credit for. And, of course, one of the things that is kind of a touchy subject is was it the Germans that made this possible? Like, you know, what kind of strange alchemy happened that French films were so interesting during this during this period? One of the things that is true is that this is not my idea, it's Susan Hayward's that throughout French history, when there is like an opposing regime well, this was a dictatorship, obviously, but it's like people get together and really work hard to create a distinguished product in the case of cinema, you know, that there was like a real effort to make these awesome films. And a lot of the people who worked in the film industry, I mean, officially everyone who worked at Continental was a collaborator, right? But a lot of the people who worked in the film industry were emigres from Germany. And some of them were Jews who never were caught. Some of them were people who had no love lost for Nazism. And so you had a lot of complex influences making these films. I've always been fascinated, especially by what you're talking about, like uh, Czechoslovakia uh, when they were under communist oppression and just the way that they will sneak messages into their films. Were there many times where you would have something controversial, or were they tamped down too hard to even begin to think about that? There are some different examples, like the one that everyone points to that I don't like, actually, but I'll mention it because it's the most it's the most famous. In The, the Night Visitors, I couldn't remember the name, the Carnet film, the Marcel Carnet film. I want to say it's 42. Close to the end of the film, there's a very diabolical character played by Jules Berry, who is, you know, a really great French actor. And there are two lovers, and the man and a woman, and he turns them to stone at the end of the film, but their hearts keep beating. And so the way this has always been interpreted is that their hearts are beating for the, for true France, for the eternal France that will come back one day and, 
you know, conquer the devil. He really is the devil, Jules in this film, and all of his emissaries. I think that's probably a way that you could read that. It makes sense. Although you could also say that their hearts are beating in the new Europe that Germany was trying to create. What you need to emphasize in, in looking at, at these kind of coded um, forms of resistance is that it was always through ambiguity. And so it's really hard to pin down one particular reading and say, oh, this is what that's really about. This is this filmmaker speaking directly to the audiences. I don't think you can say that. However, there are moments where things are just so, I don't want to use the word subversive because that's the argument that's being made for these moments. But in one of Crusoe's earlier films, the first film he directed, the assassin lives at number 21. At the end of the film, all of the suspects are lined up. It's finally been revealed who the murderers are. And they're all lined up, and um, they're told to put their hands up. And one of them extends only his left hand. I think the Hitler salute is always the right hand, but the point is, it's a parody of the Hitler salute, right? And that wasn't caught out, but I think part of the reason, you know, when censors look at films to decide what to censor, they usually look at scripts and not at imagery. And I doubt it said in the script, oh, he's going to raise his left hand in an imitation of the Hitler salute. But that's the kind of element that I think is really interesting because it's mocking the regime, but doing so in a way that, you know, you say, oh, he just put his hand up. That's all. Although only one hand, but... I'm trying to think of a good example because there are so many of them. Oh, one of my favorites, the first film that Continental released is called Her First Affair. It's Premier Rendezvous in in French. And it was directed by Henri de Coin, who is not that well-known in the history of French cinema. He had been married to Daniel Darieux, and Daniel Darieux was kind of the iconic female star of the occupation until 1942 when she got into some amount of trouble and didn't make any more films during the war. But in Premier Rendezvous, it also is one of these hybrid films where you have this mysterious thing going on in terms of this stranger who appears in people's lives. And then at the same time, you have this romantic comedy And the romantic comedy kind of wins out in the end, but the romantic comedy is very much paired with a melodrama of the fall of this middle-aged, he's portrayed as a loser in the film, who really, I'm not making this clear, but he really falls in love with Daniel Darieux, and Daniel Darieux falls in love with his nephew. And all along, she thinks that his nephew is, is her secret admirer. And so there's melodrama combined with this romantic comedy. Well, the melodrama is pretty awful because this guy can so easily be seen as the fortunes of of France. And I buy that allegory completely because he's like beaten down, kind of pathetic in terms of what he wants. And when he first meets this young woman, his apartment is like right out of the film Norset. And just so many of these films, it's just like there are all these different kind of things going on that means you can't simply write them off to pure escapism because there are kind of challenging things in the film at the same time. You know, like the story of the this middle-aged guy and 
her first affair. It's just, it's sad and pathetic. And there was even a film critic at the time who took note of that and said that this guy, this poor dejected loser at the end of the film, is a perfect embodiment of what France is like right now, feeling the effects of the of the occupation. Well, that's not my, the kind of film that the censors necessarily wanted French the French to be making, you know. But it sure comes across as a really sad portrayal of what the of what the country was going through. What kind of genres were these films? Because I I can't imagine that you're getting too many experimental films out here. It seems like it would be a lot of comedies and light dramas. That's right. Most of the output of occupation cinema is like, yeah, lots of dramas, lots of um, historically set dramas. I mean, like things like set in medieval times or, and that's where you see more of the influence of the tradition of quality. So lots of adaptations of novels and there are lots and lots of romantic comedies. And those two were probably the most common genres, although there's just plain old melodramas too, you know, dramas that are not necessarily set in his, in the historical past. But the other thing that I think is really important in the occupation is how important the detective film was. I think people, by the way, tend to overemphasize the costume dramas, the historically set costume dramas from World War II. There are plenty of them. But you know how you say one thing and that can then grow to become a kind of massive statement about the the whole period, and it just isn't accurate anymore. There were those historical dramas, there were romantic comedies, there were melodramas, and there were detective films. And all of those have examples, even the most hidebound traditional adaptations have elements that just don't fit, you know, that are a lot more complex than people usually give them credit for. Like, there's an adaptation, this came out in 1943, an adaptation of a Zola novel called The Lady's Paradise, and um, it starred Michel Simon. The novel by by Zola tells the story of um, a huge department store that pushes out any small shopkeepers in the neighborhoods of of Paris. Um, Michel Simon in the film plays one of the shopkeepers, and his niece arrives in the country after her parents' death, and she finds work in one of the department stores and conveniently falls in love with the guy who's in charge of the department store. And at the end of the film, there's this huge ball that's going on, uh, to celebrate, I don't know, his success in the department store. And he gives this speech, and he actually refers to the audience as his dear collaborators and how we're entering into a new era of cooperation, you know, where we're all going to make our lives better, blah, 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 blah. Okay, you could say, oh, sure, you know, that's the Nazis rooting for themselves. Not so fast, because Michel Simon is a really beloved actor. He's one of the people that got destroyed by this guy's department store. It's not like everything that's presented under the mantle of collaboration is necessarily such a good thing. And so they're complicated things like that in a lot of the of the films, where they're not just speaking to a loyal collaborationist audience. They're speaking to 
a lot of different types of people at the same time. And honestly, how could it be otherwise? Because, yeah, there were collaborators in France, but there were plenty of people who were on the wrong side of collaboration. To me, the most interesting ones are the ones that have these hybrid elements to them that combine these different genres. You mentioned the one character raising his arm, and the one thing that I really was curious about with uh, the Corbeau was the character who's missing an arm. Yeah, that's Clouseau all the way. Clouseau is really interested in people who are damaged in one way or another, damaged without any value judgment associated with it, you know. But, I mean, part of that is a reminder. Now, Denise in the film. Hers is the result, her injury is the result of an auto accident. But certainly when you first see her brother, the administrator of the school, you assume it's a World War One injury, as were, you know, so common. And that's part of the reason why this film was so controversial, because people said that um, the people who were against this film and there were plenty of them, said that the portrait it painted of France was just so vile and disgusting and horrible. Yeah, it sort of does that. Part of the thing with Le Corbeau, and part of why it's been such a controversial film, part of it is the result of timing, because it came out in the fall of 1943. By then, nobody thought the Germans were going to win the war. Um, It was pretty... I mean, the Germans may have fought however desperately they wanted to and continued, you know, their pernicious policies. But the the tide had really turned in terms in terms of who was gonna win the who was gonna win the war. There was a clandestine journal called Les Lettres Francaises, uh, French Letters, and they in nineteen forty four, yeah, forty four, they published a supplement which was the first issue of L'Ecran Francais, French Screen, which became its own journal after the end of the war. There was another film that came out in 44 called uh, The Sky Belongs to Us, Le Ciel est à nous. And the writer of this article in this clandestine journal, the title of the article was The, the Raven Has Been Plucked. And it compares and contrasts the Ra- Le, Le Corbeau with this film by Jean Grémion called The Sky Belongs to Us. And it said, while Le Corbeau shows us this vile picture of the French as these scheming, horrible people, Le Ciel et shows us a positive vision of France, you know, where people pursue their dreams and blah, 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 blah. And it was a, it was a cheap comparison, but it really, it really held. And so by the time, uh, I mean, Paris was liberated in August 44. So by the time the end of the war came around, um, Le Corbeau had pretty much uh, gained its reputation as a very controversial, nasty film. The, the Catholic Church had a rating of one to six. Six were films that were perfectly fine for all audience and, and audiences, and one was this is the most horrible thing you've ever seen in your life. That's what they gave Le Corbeau was a one. And the left also pounced on Le Corbeau. The, the critic, Georges Sadoul, wrote about Le Corbeau and said, and said it was, you know, just a, a horrible, horrible film. And he was very influential. He's a member of the Communist Party. Um, 
in the purge trials that followed the the war, Nicole Bull was was a perfect kind of object of attack because it was a film that a lot of these people had decided was a, a just a vile film in terms of how it how it presented the French. And its maker, Clouseau, not only worked for Continental, the Nazi-owned film company, he was the head of the screenplay division there. And so he was a perfect target. Now, one of the things you could say about this, and it's sort of typical in a lot of these kinds of cases, is that all venom that could have been dispersed to a whole lot of different people during the war, all of it got directed to Continental Films in particular and to Clouseau. There were two other films that were sold out and were banned. The other one was The Strangers in the House, Les Inconnus de la Maison, for which Clouseau wrote the screenplay, and another film called La Vie de Plaisir, The Life of Pleasure, which was one of the last Continental films. And it was directed by a name by a man named Albert Valentin. It destroyed his career. He was ruined by how he and the film were treated. So they were banned, right? And eventually all of these people had to come before the purge tri- the purge committees in the in the years after the war. And people got differing sentences. Some people were excused completely. But Clouseau, initially he was banned for life from the film industry. Then he was banned for three years. You know, this was like one of those cases of the right hand not always knowing what the left hand was doing, you know? I mean, he presented a defense, and a lot of people spoke up in his in his favor. But the association with Continental was just, it was ramming for him. And Albert Valentin, his, he just was a mess after he was accused of making this horrible film. It's a really interesting film, by the way. Clouseau didn't give up. Again, in, in one of these like bizarre cases of the right hand not knowing what the left hand was doing, he managed to get funding together to make a film in 1947, and that's the Quai des Ophèvres. Part of the reason for that was that there was a film festival going on and his and Lacobo got the top prize, <laughs> and so it was becoming embarrassing to continue to. And you know, people said in the years after World War II, when uh, like American filmmakers and and film artists came to France, the what they always asked was, "Do you have a copy of Lacobo? Can I see it?" Because it was impossible to see. Right? And so he really, I have to, even though I think he was probably a horrible man. Um, honest, but I love his films. He like slapped people on the set all the time, and he was just like a real. Oh yeah, he was horrible. I have to give it to the guy. He fought back, and Katie Zofev, the mystery combined with a kind of show stage show, not musical exactly, but there's some of that in it. And Susie Delaire plays Jenny Lamour, and she's so fabulous in it. And there's a really dirty plot about pornographic pictures and, you know, all kinds of people do just horrible things in it. But this is what I really have to give Clouseau credit for. You know who he made the most sympathetic character in that film? A lesbian. (laughs) I mean, that's just like him. You know, he goes perverse. He just loves to go perverse. So to go from being banned from the industry initially in 1944 to making a film in 1947, I say that's someone who really 
stuck to it. You know, like, I, I really have to give him credit. Even though, as I said, I know he's a horrible guy. But he made great films, you know, what can you say? And then he even made a film about World War II, which is just out in a restored version. Um, it's called Manon. And I think it's really interesting, too, because... He takes on the central female character who is the name, you know, the title character. She's someone who is, uh, almost épuration sauvage, savage per, you know, when they shaved women's heads in, after, after the end of World War II, women who had collaborated with, uh, with the Germans. Um, there's a scene of that in this film. And you can tell that's Clouseau talking about himself. That's for sure. You know, um, I mean, what he got wasn't as bad as what a lot of other people got, but he, he really, you know, just came back hitting, you know, I think Katie Zofev also got a lot of attention and it won a prize. I also, I also think I remember. I'm sorry. My, I'm just not used to talking to somebody this long. This is so funny. I'm getting hoarse. I promise I will just ask you one final question as far as how progress is going on the book, and that's it. Okay. I, I'm, I'm really embarrassed to say how long it's taken me, but I retired in 2011, and I was like really into this book when I retired. Now, I did have somewhat major surgery. It's nothing life-threatening. It wasn't cancer or anything like that. I had a hip replaced. But that kind of exit from academia, I don't know. For some reason, I just like didn't feel the urge to get things done as quickly. And I've been, you know, I still collect stuff um, on the occupation. A lot of the films that I only saw in archival prints are now available on DVD. Um, there have been two books published in France on continental films. So I've kind of taken a different tack, you know, really focusing on the film noir stuff and detective stuff, as well as the romantic comedy and how it gets sort of completely twisted um, in Continental films. I thought of not doing it exclusively on Continental because I'm not talking about the business of Continental, which of course is interesting in and of itself because of the German control of it. But my understanding has always been that those papers are lost. Once the war was over in Paris, rumor was that Greven um, sneaked out of, somebody reported seeing this, sneaked out of continental offices with, with, um, suitcase full of documents, but other people say they were all destroyed. Um, I have a feeling that someday, somewhere, some documents will emerge. You know, we'll know more about how continental actually functioned as, as a, as a company. And there's no question it was a, you know, it was a Nazi company. I mean, it ran like a Nazi company. But part of what's interesting about Continental is that Greven, the head of the studio, loved French film. He was a real Francophile, and he and he loved French film in particular. And so I think that accounts for some of the liberty. He was often um, in in conflict with Goebbels. Um, Goebbels wanted to produce just fluffy things. He didn't want them. To, he didn't want Continental to make any films that could be taken seriously. And uh, there are some really stupid films that were made by Continental, but that's not true of the majority of them. I keep hoping that I will get a burst of energy and finish. I mean, it's it's like, I don't know, it's getting there, but I'm just not done with it yet.
right. We are back and we we're talking about Le Corbeau. And I just, I wanted to read something from, uh, Judith's book about Le Corbeau, just kind of wrapping up a lot of the things as far as the, the femininity of the crime itself, the reason or some of the reasons why this was not seen as a very uh, positive portrayal of French people, let's say, and why Clouseau was uh, pilloried after the war. The proliferation of anonymous letters stands as sympathetic of one of the many paradoxes of Vichy, Nazi occupation and collaboration. For anonymous letters of denunciation would could well have been seen as perpetuating the dreaded image of French as a weak, feminized adversary of Germany, not brave or strong enough to stand up to the invader either in battle or in daily life. The practice of anonymous letter writing corresponds to the worst stereotypes of devious, gossiping feminine behavior. Vichy officials and French collaborators were determined to combat the image of a feminine passive France. But the sneaky, passive-aggressive mode of anonymous letter writing affirms the stereotype. Paradoxically, of course, it was a stereotype upon which the collaborationists and occupiers relied within limits. So I love that she kind of sums up so much of it. I love this. I hadn't thought of that, because gossip is generally thought of as a feminine thing, but I'm sorry, men love to gossip, possibly even more than women do. But yeah, it's, it's associated with this sort of, it's a feminine thing and usually with like an older woman thing as well. It's like stop gossiping like an old woman. And I, I love that. I really love that. It's great. Yeah. Her book, it's only about a hundred pages, but it's fan fucking tastic. Everything that she's written about this film is just, it is so good. And I can't wait to read her book about occupation cinema because. Just what she's talked about, uh, even in some of the articles she's written, is just fantastic. And I love to see, you know, we've talked so many times, Kat, about filmmaking under oppression, you know, especially for us when it comes to, like, Czech cinema and just, like, how do you get your message across? Can you get your message across, you know? And here is an entire country dominated by Germany and or the Vichy government, which basically was Germany, and how do they present their message if they can even get their message across. One thing that I was surprised about when it came to this film is that I never read anything about the remake of it in any of the articles that uh, I was able to find about it. What did you guys think of the 13th letter? I could only take about the first 10 minutes. It just seemed too milk dust for me. I it's very Hollywood, which is interesting because this Otto Preminger, who, you know, was transgressive in his own way, but an, an early film for Preminger, I guess. There are bits of it that I liked, but it's very Hollywood. So everyone is kind of black and white. Parts of it are almost word for word Clouseau's version, but we see the eradication of all the abortion stuff taken out. And, you know, it's just smoothed down for for Hollywood consumption, really, isn't it? We're talking about oppression. That's another system which, ironically, is the world of the free that was possibly one of the most oppressive <laughs> film system, systems when it came to theme. But it didn't really have the anger of Clouseau either. Enjoyable as, a, as an American noir, I would say, but without all the sharp edges of Clouseau. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, Michael Rennie as Dr. Pearson instead of Dr. Germain, he is very 
much more upstanding. And yeah, it, it, he is not the kind of bastard that Dr. Germain is. And that really makes it a lot less interesting. And then Charles Boyer as uh, Dr. Laurent. And I found it interesting that they, they set this in Quebec. So you've got Boyer with his thick French accent and they're able to speak French a few times in this because of it being in Quebec and that he had gone to Montreal for a medical conference and comes back and is very suspicious of his wife possibly sleeping around while he was away. It also is interesting that Michael Rennie is like a head taller than Charles Boyer, so he definitely holds that masculine image of, I am the hero of this film, because he is literally taller than everybody else on screen. Yeah, it's very conventional in many ways. I don't want to say it's disappointing, because, no, it's still it's still entertaining, but it's tempered, it's... You know, it's it's been rendered impotent in many ways. I think just by the production code, I would have thought. I don't think they could have dealt with anything like Le Corbeau. It would have, you know, it would have caused ructions with considering the amount of taboo subjects that they cover in that. The one thing that I liked about it that I think was in Le Corbeau, but they really made a point of it, was when... There's the uh, official, I think it's right around the time of the funeral, and he is talking about how he's going to you know, be the one to bring this person to justice. And he basically starts making a political speech, and then they're passing around a letter in the crowd. And it's like, hey, this guy is going to try to take all this credit, and he's just a blowhard and just undermining everything that this guy is saying. I like that part of it quite a bit. This reminds me, I, I guess, going back to M, and I guess because M is the 13th letter of the alphabet, this reminds me a little bit of Losi's remake of M, where it didn't have the punch. It was still an interesting film, but it didn't have the punch of the original. I mean, it, this is interesting as an artifact. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And Preminger is such a fascinating filmmaker, but I wouldn't say this was one of his best. But it is still worth watching, I think, just as a solid noir. And it's interesting that a lot of the scenes are almost lifted from Le Corbeau, which is interesting that you say it's not really mentioned in any articles because it's obviously a, a remake, but it's like they've removed all the more dubious artifacts. <laughs> but the structure of it is still very, very similar. So interesting that it doesn't really come up, like you say, it doesn't come up in conjunction with that. Because you'd often think, you know, you often get a very transgressive European film from the code era and you think, say, what if this was made in Hollywood? Well, now you can see, also in the case of M, is, you know, what it would have been like if it was made in Hollywood. But I, I don't want to totally trash it because I, there were things in it that I enjoyed. I find the, uh, the basic premise of the story, the whole idea of the poison pen letter, that's fascinating in and of itself, and, and it's provided great entertainment over the years in, in different forms. Starting with me, for there's a great Mark Twain story called The Man Who Corrupted Hadleyburg. And the idea of uncovering, you know, this basically nice community in Twain's story, and then by the end of it, you realize how corrupt everybody is takes everybody and there's our town and leading up to like twin peaks for that matter the whole idea of the on the surface it's one thing but then you get underneath and you see what's really going on 
and there's uh, all kinds of strange goings on. It's a tradition of sorts, this kind of story. I feel very remiss because there is actually a, a film from 1939 called Poison Pen that I wasn't aware of until recently. And then it's like, oh, okay, I probably should have watched that for this because that would have been smart. And then, yeah, I think there was one article that I read where they were talking about, and I'm, I'm going to blink on the person's name. The woman that wrote The Lottery also wrote... Shady Jackson. Thank you. She also wrote a story about a poison pen writer, and it's from their point of view and how they are this force of justice. Well, I think in the case of Jackson, she was very good at kind of unearthing how hypocritical... American, small town America could be. And you can see, not to go on too much of a tangent, but when Ken was talking there about influence, the first thing I, that came into my mind was Stephen King. Stephen King was really influenced by Jackson. But you get something like Salem's Lot, where you have this small town America where everybody's supposedly respectable and a vampire gets in their midst and all this crap comes out about the times moment and they're all having affairs or they're all really shady and they're not you know they become the villains just as much as the vampires the villains which is something that's fascinated stephen king so you can i'm not going to say shirley jackson was (laughs) influenced by clouseau but there is she she did understand people on that same level i think just how hypocritical people can be and how spiteful they can be and how petty-minded you know but then on on the surface they have to present this very clean image and it's just endlessly fascinating isn't it it's why we love celebrity gossip it's why we love reality tv we like to see all the nitty-gritty and all the secrets spit out the dirty laundry everywhere, we can't look away, even though we're like, oh, well, you know, that's terrible, and we judge that person. We, we've, we're fascinated by it. Le Corbeau shows that, I think, really well, shows that re- in a really damning version of just how people can get caught up in gossip and then condemning people for things that they've done. The name of the story was The Possibility of Evil, just uh, FYI. And I totally agree with you what you're saying about Salem's Lot because of the the way that the poison pen letter sweeps through the town is very similar to I was calling it a disease and talking about vampirism I mean there you go I mean who bit who who knew who knew who was the vampire when I mean I could really see Le Corbeau is we keep calling it a mystery but there are elements of this at times that are a horror film yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to what I was saying about the gothic elements. That funeral scene is really, the way it's shot is really gothic. I think it's beautiful. Vampires are, insert metaphor here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, we talked a lot about vampires when we talked about Shadow of a Doubt, uh, the Hitchcock film years ago, because there was, uh, I can't remember if it was a, The Return of Dracula, but there was one uh, vampire film that I was just like, oh, wow they were definitely influenced by Shadow of a Doubt. It was like the vampire version of a Hitchcock film. It was wild. Forsay is like a vampire in a way because he feeds off the confusion and the fear. He absolutely feeds off it in every scene that we see him in. We know that he's enjoying it because I guess it's his only sense of power that he has if we think that he's possibly impotent and a drug addict (laughs) behind the scenes. 
Have you guys heard of the Circleville letters, by the way? Mm-mm. No. There's a portion of drunk history that was <laughs> devoted to it. It was on Unsolved Mysteries. But it was a story involved in Circleville, Ohio. There was this lady who had a, uh, who was a school bus driver and she received a poison pen letter accusing her of, uh, infidelity. And this went on for 18 years. Holy shit. Someone ended up dead and there was somebody in her brother-in-law ended up in prison. He has never acknowledged having committed the murder. It's a really fascinating story. If you get to just Google Circleville poison pen. So no one suspects anything is wrong. It's Circleville. It's Circleville. And then suddenly all the residents, like thousands of them, start getting creepy, weird, cryptic, anonymous letters. One lady opens her mail and it's like, we know what you do on a Tuesday night. I know you have these many kids and like, you've been bad. So all these letters, they're all sent from Columbus, Ohio. And the writing is super creepy and blocky. Uh, yes, gulp indeed. When they were looking into those letters in Tool, they kept wondering, who is the person that could possibly know these things? There were things about people's family histories, and, you know, this woman had a, a title in her name that was not proper, so, you know, the letter was demanding that they remove the title from their name. I love that Vorze is the only psychiatrist, psychologist in town, so he knows all of the dirty secrets of anyone who comes to him, and he's using all of those things, breaking privilege by by spilling his guts and knowing all of these dirty secrets about everybody that's in town and able to use that position of power to really turn people against each other. That's a good point. As like once again, the Circleville murders thing, the idea that the bus driver, she hears all of her kids talking, you know, and so she was a suspect because she fig- they figured this woman would have the dirt on, on the community because she overheard the kids talking on the bus. And you're right, being a, psychi- a psychologist or psychiatrist, he's going to hear dirt. Just to round it up, though, because um, all of a sudden people have discovered that cleaners are actually important. I worked in the cleaning industry for two to three decades, like most of my adult life. And generally, cleaners are invisible. But Clouseau's film shows us that never underestimate the fucking cleaner because we hear everything. And when I worked as a cleaner, the things that I would hear just walking around offices because you're invisible to most people. And the gossip and the stuff I used to overhear. Uh, same goes for people, uh, chambermaids in hotels as well. Uh, worked in a hotel for you and the things that you see. So it's like never underestimate the cleaner. You know, the doctor may have power, but the cleaner ultimately knows everything that's going on, even what the doctor's doing, (laughs) which I love. The one thing that I I really wanted to add real quick was when they finally caught the person who was writing most of the letters in Tool, because again, it spread and people would would write um, once they kind of had, uh, you know, permission to do so. But they said that it couldn't be this woman because of her upbringing, and she used all of this pornographic language, and there's no way a woman of her standing could use any of the language <laughs> that was used in these letters. 
I love it. Oh, so good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. We'll be back next week with a look at Jean Rollin's Lips of Blood. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ken and Kat. So, Kat, what has been keeping you busy? I actually opened my post this week, and I've had quite a few uh, copies of stuff that I worked on in that, and you know, late last year and early this year in the normal world which are just coming out now because a lot of Blu-ray releases have been held up because of shipping policies on Amazon and, you know, warehouses being closed and whatnot. It's been a bit chaotic. So Hagasusa is just turned up, which is coming out from Arrow. And I'm sh- I'm sure these are all imminent or they're out now, uh, which I did a commentary on Lucas Ackerveld's debut film which is a really interesting film about witchcraft probably not everyone's cup of tea but i certainly found it a meaty morsel to chew on for the commentary uh revenge coralie farge's sort of hyper violent rape revenge film action film which is brilliant it's coming out from second sight and i did a commentary on that and the sukamoto box set finally turned up from arrow which I did a book of essay or a couple of book of essays on, but oh my God, it's a beautiful set just to actually see it, you know, and it's got like a hardbound book in it and several films. It's just such a beautiful set. So I was really happy to see that. So I've been quarantining all my parcels for about, I'm so paranoid for about four weeks. So it was like Christmas really at the end of it. I was like, Oh, look. And I found Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder, which I, 
ordered in March and has probably been sat in my hallway uh, since it was delivered, <laughs> which I didn't have anything to do with. I just absolutely love that film. And Ken, how about you? What's new in your world? Uh, yesterday was the 10th anniversary of my band's last release. So we uploaded that to Bandcamp and we're planning on uh, the 15th of every month uh, putting up various different things and making them available for free. And I'm making music with uh, various different people on this app, Band Lab, which is a lot of fun. You start a song and other people contribute to it. That's about it. Watching movies, uh, hanging out, you know, uh, not much, but uh, stay trying to stay busy. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. I'm
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.